0: Welcome to Kishwaukee Bible Church. I invite you to uh, grab a Bible and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5 today. We're going to look at the entire chapter. It's one of the shorter chapters, so we're going to do something unprecedented in our study of 1 Corinthians so far and uh, work through an entire chapter of Scripture this morning. Leave it's on page 954 in the Bibles that are available on the rack where you came in this morning. I thought we'd start out today uh, by playing a little word association game. Are you guys up for that? A little word association? You know how that works? I say a word. You say the first word that comes to your mind. Should we give it a try? Okay, let's go for it. Um, somebody's game for it anyway. Peanut butter. Jelly. Okay. There's no right answer, by the way. Just kind of curious this morning. Uh, Night. Day. Day. Dark. I don't know what else I heard out there. If you watched too much TV in the 1980s like me, you might have said rider (laughs) or (laughs) ranger if you listened to too much music. But um, how about this one? Boat. Fish. Fish. Somebody would rather be out fishing right now, apparently. Um, Water. Okay. Car, wash, okay, wash was the right answer this morning, there is a right answer because if you haven't in faith given the youth group your keys to have them wash your car, you should do that this morning, Uh, uh, they're washing cars and it's free and what could be better than that? Okay, one more, party, now, Now. (laughs) pooper, party downer. Celebrate, maybe. Uh, When you hear the word party, maybe you think celebrate. Maybe you think, um, you know, let's party. Let's party now, somebody said. Or perhaps you thought of something on a negative side, something that sort of in your pre Jesus life characterized parties. But I think nobody thought, and certainly nobody said when I said the word party, I didn't hear the word purity or the word holiness. And I didn't, I had the guys not put up, you can put that slide up now with the with the new sermon title on there. Because uh, if I was afraid if I had this up early you might have cheated. But these typically aren't two ideas or two words or concepts. A partying celebration on the one hand. Purity and holiness on the other hand. We don't really think of those together so much. And yet in the passage, in, 1 Corinthians chapter 5, the passage we're going to look at this morning, the Apostle Paul connects these two realities. Celebration, partying, and holiness. Christian purity very, connects them very clearly together. And he even connects them together and then connects it to the sense of the mission of the local church. And so this morning, as we work through 1 Corinthians chapter 5, I want you to be thinking along the lines of purity and party, and observe how that comes together in the idea and the understanding of our mission as the local church. So first, let's read God's word this morning. I invite you to follow along. This is God's word from 1 Corinthians chapter 5. The Apostle Paul writes to the church at Corinth. He's shifting gears here. He spent a lot of time addressing the, their overarching attitude and sin of arrogance and pride, and now he's going to come back to a couple of things that have been that he's heard about that have been reported to him that he needs to address with some apostolic authority. It is actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, church, and of the kind that is not tolerated even among pagans, for a man has his father's wife. And you are arrogant. Ought you not rather mourn? Let him who has done this be removed from among you. For though absent in the body, I am present in the spirit. And as if present, I have already pronounced judgment on the one who did such a thing. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and my spirit is present with the power of the Lord Jesus... You are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? Cleanse out the old leaven, that you may be a new lump, as you already are unleavened. For Christ... The Passover lamb has been sacrificed. Let us therefore celebrate the festival, not with the old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. I wrote to you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the sexually immoral of this world or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters, Since then, you would need to go out of the world. But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother. If he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler. Not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. Purge the evil person from among you. This is God's holy word. Let's ask him to help us understand it. God, we do ask for your help. We know you have provided your spirit for this particular reason, to open up Scripture to us, open up your word to us, and open us to your word. And so, Holy Spirit, we pray that you'd do that this morning as we're gathered together as your people. Help us to understand uh, not only individually how we should respond to your word this morning, but would you, would you transform us to know how we should respond together as a local church as well. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to work through this passage in uh, sort of two big movements with two smaller movements uh, under each of those and and divide the passage into two parts. First is the verses 1 through 5 where Paul is dealing with impurity in the church. And then the second major section is the rest of the chapter, verses 6 through 13, where he's calling for purity within the church. So first sort of dealing with the negative, dealing with impurity in the church, and then calling the church toward purity. As I mentioned before, Paul is shifting gears here. He closed out sort of a major section at the end of chapter 4. He greets the church at Corinth, this church that he was so uh, vitally connected to relationally, having been the, the pastor, as it were, the missionary who preached the word there and implanted that church. And, and now he's he's heard about this uh, the divisions that are in the church, this overarching arrogance and, and prideful attitude they have, and, and that's taken some specific shape in their prideful uh, attitude toward him and their questioning of, of his sort of apostolic authority. And, and now Paul has to, uh, he has to act on that apostolic authority. He has to exercise it in addressing some issues. First in chapter 5, this issue of a man who's in a, a really repugnant form of immorality, sexual immorality. He need, Paul needs to exercise his apostolic authority and say some really authoritative things uh, to the church here. He's heard this report of a brother Of someone who is part of the church who is involved in a very disturbing form of sinful behavior. Now, I think we need to understand what is not the issue here as well as what is the issue here. First of all, what is not the issue here is Paul is not surprised that there's sin in the church, he's not shocked that there's sin among God's people. Paul is no uh, Christian perfectionist who, who believes that once people trust in Jesus Christ, uh, they no longer sin, or perhaps they can move on to some special attainment of spirituality and, be, and become perfect so they don't sin. He's, he's not surprised that there's sin in the local church. He spends much time in his letters addressing sin in the local church and, and calling people to, to draw down on God's grace and, and to turn from sin and repent of it continually, uh, Martin Luther said that the, in his very first of the 95 Theses that the entirety of the Christian life is one of repentance, and that is indeed true and biblical. And we see that in Paul's writing, so he's not surprised that there's, there are instances of sin in the church, and, he, and Paul is not hung up on sexual sin in particular. Uh, sometimes people have read the Apostle Paul and, and, and have, have, I think, mislabeled him as, as being hung up on, on sex. Oh, Christians, are, they're, they're so anti-sex. Well, we're going to see Paul has much to say about the healthy and godly expression of sexuality within the, a, a biblical marriage, a marriage between a man and a woman. And so that's not the issue either. The issue has to do with, first of all, the very grievous Nature of this particular sin. There's a man in the church who is involved sexually with his father's wife. It's not his mother, apparently, it's his stepmother, and yet it falls into a category of incest. And this form of behavior is so repulsive, Paul says that, that even the unbelieving world around them in Corinth is shocked by what's going on, which is saying a lot. Because Corinth was, was, you know, it was not known as a nice place in terms of its morality. It's been compared to taking sort of, you know, New York City and, and Las Vegas and the red-light district of, of Amsterdam and kind of combining it into one place. The, the term Corinthianized basically meant to go out and carouse. And yet, people outside the church were seeing what was happening inside the Christ's church, and they were repulsed by it. So Paul is already hinting that that what he's writing here has something to do with with Christian witness and the reputation of the church to those on the outside. Secondly, the issue here is the church's attitude toward this man and his sin. Uh, They're arrogant. Here here we have that word again. They're, they're, They're puffed up. This seems to have been, without a doubt, the, the besetting sin of this particular uh, local congregation. We sometimes talk about, as, as individuals, as followers of Christ, as we fight the battle, uh, as the Holy Spirit empowers us to, to put to death sin in our lives, sometimes, as individuals, we struggle with a besetting sin. The sin that we're particularly susceptible. Another brother or sister might not be uh, particularly tempted to that, but it's one that we struggle with. Well, here is a, a congregation, and here we see that entire congregations can struggle with a, a besetting sin, a particular sin. And often it is the sin of pride, as it was in the church of Corinth. And, and we, we get a hint at, at how this was being worked out and sort of the, the thought process of the Corinthian church from, from the context, from what follows in 1 Corinthians, what their attitude was. They, they had these certain, there, there are certain words in the book of 1 Corinthians that Paul has been picking up on and kind of turning back on the Corinthian church. He already did that with the word spiritual. They thought that certain people were, were really spiritual, and so he sort of, we saw him sort of turn that word around and say, hey, this is what it means to be spiritual, uh, we see another thing like that in chapter 6, verse 12. It's actually in quotes uh, in the ESV and I'm sure in other translations as well. Verse 12 begins with a quote. All things are lawful for me. This is a little slogan that the church in Corinth, you know, we have our little slogans, I suppose, uh, you know, praise the Lord, uh, and everything happens for a reason. We have these little slogans we like to say in sort of church world. They had a slogan that said, hey, everything is lawful for me. And then Paul begins to correct them, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful for me, but I will not be dominated by anything. We see Paul do the same thing in chapter 10, verse 23. And the issue here was a misunderstanding of God's grace by the Corinthian church. They understood rightly that through faith in Jesus, the perfect law keeper, they were released from the law, as a means of righteousness. The the law no longer stands over the head of a Christian accusing him or her, praise God, once they trust in the broken body and shed blood of Jesus Christ for their righteousness. The, The righteous one who laid down his life for us. And so we don't have to earn or attain righteousness. This is the big issue that all people have in the world is we need to be righteous to stand before a holy God and we don't have it. But as Paul writes in Romans, God provided a righteousness outside of ourselves, an alien righteousness through Jesus Christ. And so we are righteous in the sight of God through faith in him. And so the law does not condemn us that way. But that doesn't mean the law has no place in the Christian's life. And that's the misunderstanding by the Corinthian church. It's sometimes called antinomianism, uh, anti-against the law. uh, uh, I'm done with the law. Well, the law, God's law, summed up in the Ten Commandments, continues to be a guide for our life and a guide for what it looks like to grow in righteousness and in holiness and more and more into the image of Christ. But the the church at Corinth, many of them had misunderstood this and said, hey, no more law. So it doesn't really matter what I do. I, I I can do what I want. And they were applying that toward this particular person in their church involved in a particularly serious form of sexual immorality. And so Paul here in the first two verses of this chapter sharply chastises the church at Corinth for its permissive and arrogant attitude toward this man, involved in a deeply offensive and clearly unrepentant sin pattern. And so we learn that that holiness in the local church matters to God. God's people ought to be, therefore, diligent to pursue holiness, not just on an individual basis, but but corporately together as the local church. Our attitude, therefore, towards sin, both our own and the failures of our brothers and sisters, which we see on display when we live before one another, ought not to be arrogance. Hey, look how free we are. But, as Paul says here in verse 2, it ought to be grief. We ought to mourn. We ought to mourn our own sin. We ought to be deeply sorrowful for it. And when we observe sin in the lives of our brothers and sisters, we ought to, we ought to mourn for that. We ought to be deeply sorrowful for that. But the Bible says that, that godly sorrow leads to repentance. Later in the second uh, letter that we have in the, in the Bible, Paul wrote several letters to the church at Corinth, but in w- the one that we call Second Corinthians chapter 7, Paul addresses this in verse 9, writing to this same group. He says, As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved. Paul wrote a different letter that, was, that caused them to grieve. But because you were grieved unto repentance, for you felt godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. I'm tempted to say that according to the eminent theologian Charlie Brown, there's something called good grief, Uh, but I decided not to say that this morning (laughs) because that was the reaction I knew I would get. But there is something called good grief. Grieving that which is grievous in our lives is good. And God's intent for grieving our sin and grieving sin in the life of the church is that it leads to repentance. And so Paul gives clear instruction here regarding the necessary response for this particular individual. He needs to be removed from the fellowship of the local body, which is the second point under dealing with impurity in the local church. There is a, nece- a necessary response. Paul begins that at the end of verse 2, and he continues in, uh, to verses 3 through 5 talking about what that response should look like. He gives us the details of the necessary response to this very serious issue in the church. and It falls under the category of what we call exercising church discipline. And this is not the only place in the Bible that speaks to church discipline. Jesus, in fact, taught a process of church discipline in Matthew chapter 18. And it's sort of a four-step process. I think all of us need to be familiar with this. Not just church leadership, but all of us in the church need to be familiar with the process of church discipline, which begins in, in a very relational kind of way. Jesus says, if you are, have been offended by a brother or sister uh, in the, the body, if they have sinned against you, and I think we can extend that, if somebody is involved in sin and you see it's, it's heading down a, ba- a, a horrible path, you go to that person, one-on-one, individually, and humbly say, Dear brother, dear sister, I, I've, I just have this concern for you in this area. It, it seems that in this area your life is out of line with, with what it should be as a follower of Christ and um, could we talk about that and could you help me to understand and I want to point you to, toward God's grace and, and the, that is available you, to, to you through repentance. And Jesus says if, if they receive that, well, if they repent, your brother or sister has been one. But if they don't, Then step two is to go to that person, again, with great humility, with one or two other believers who know them, and again, do the same thing. Humbly plead with them to turn from their sin. And even if after that step it doesn't happen, then the third step is to let the church know, to let the entire congregation know. And I think the implication is that the church might be lovingly calling that person to repentance and praying for that person. And then, if they still do not repent, and notice how this takes a lot of time, and there's a lot of pleading, and there's a lot of loving, and there's a lot of praying for, and there's a lot of care. Then finally, if they do not turn, Jesus says to treat that person as if they're an outsider. Treat them as if they're an unbeliever. Here Paul says that person needs to be put outside of the fellowship, the protective fellowship, of the church. And that, I believe, is the situation that we have here with the incestuous man in Corinth, recorded here in 1 Corinthians chapter 5. I think much time has elapsed. It's not clear exactly is, is the church condoning this sin, but their silence says volumes. It says that they're, they're at, the, at the very least tolerating what's going on in this man's life. Apparently, uh, the woman that he is involved in, with is not part of the church. Uh, they're not addressing her. It's, it appears that she is an unbeliever. She is on the outside. And Paul is concerned because... The church is allowing this man to to, to think and to act and to go on as if uh, he can continue his life of sin without eternal consequences. I can't help but think of Romans chapter 6 when Paul asks the question and then answers it himself. Shall Shall we go on sinning that grace may abound? Paul's answer to his own question, by no means. May it never be. How can we who died to sin United with Christ in his death, how can we who died to sin still live in it? By no means. This man is on on terribly shaky ground. And you need to care for him and love him enough to take this step. And Paul makes it really clear what that step is. Four different times in this passage, he says what needs to happen with with this man. Chapter, end of chapter, excuse me, end of verse 2. Let him who has done this be removed from, from among you. Uh, verse 5, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh so that his spirit may be saved in the day of the Lord. Verse 7, cleanse out the old leaven that you may be a new lump. And the very last verse of the passage at the end, purge the evil person from among you. It's very clear. And it's very clear that the exercise of church discipline in the local assembly is a weighty, weighty matter. But it can't be avoided. It must not. And for us who live in a culture that's, that's so dominated by the, the idea and the value of, of tolerance, church discipline, especially this final step of, of, of excommunicating someone, That's the idea. They need to be put outside the fellowship of the church. They need to be uh, denied the the means of God's grace in communion because they're not living as a believer. They would be eating and drinking judgment to themselves, the Scripture says. Especially in in our culture, in our mindset, when we think about that, it sounds really harsh. It sounds unloving. Hey, who am I to judge? I'm not perfect. Don't we all need to be just, just a little bit more humble? Well, it's interesting that the reason we might give for not exercising church discipline, namely we, got, we need to be humble, um, in the case of the Corinthians, it was just the opposite. They were not exercising church discipline because of their pride. And perhaps that is a, a heart check for us as well if when the time arises, and this is the, one of the beauties about talking about church discipline when a church is not in the midst of exercising church discipline, now is the time to to understand the biblical foundations of this process and, and for a church to make its commitments. And so it's helpful to think through some of the guidelines that are here in this passage for exercising godly church discipline. I just want to point to four of them by observation. First is that church discipline is the function of the local church. Notice that in in verses 3 through uh, 5, where Paul talks about how they ought to carry out this process. In verse 4, he says, when you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus. Uh, It isn't just the leadership or some other group uh, doing all this back in a room. Uh, There needs to be conversations with the leadership and with elders, but it happens, it's carried out as the body of Christ, as the local assembly. Notice secondly that the process is conducted under God-ordained authority. And now here we have Paul's apostolic authority. And it's it's, it's a little bit fuzzy what exactly he means here, but it's clear that this process of disciplining this man needs to happen under his apostolic authority. He says, now listen, you guys need need to assemble together and, and I'm going to be with you, I'm not going to be with you in body, but I'm going to be with you in spirit. And what Paul means by that is not exactly clear. Probably two different things or a combination of two different things. Uh, one is they're assembled. The Holy Spirit dwells in each of them and together in the body of Christ there. Uh, that same Holy Spirit dwells in Paul, and so Paul says, by extension, there's a a very real sense in which, as your father in the faith, I'm with you when you gather for any purpose, and certainly when you gather to carry out this very serious issue of church discipline. I think what Paul also may mean here is that they are reading a letter that he wrote as an apostle. And he's, he's understanding that they're going to read that together as they're assembled. And so Paul's apostolic authority is, is coming to them through that letter, which, by the way, has become God's word for us. It was God's word to them, and now it has been uh, in our canon as God's word. And so th- there is this understanding that, that we, carry out ap- we carry out church discipline under the apostolic word of God, under the authority and the covering of the word of God. And whatever whatever we do needs to flow out of the truth of God's word and not our own ideas and not our own wisdom. Third guideline for church discipline is that we learned here that it is reserved not for any old time one of us sins or trips up. Yes, all sin is serious to God. All sin is an offense to him. But here we learn that church discipline is reserved for especially grievous forms of sin. This, In this case, because it threatened to contaminate the entire church. Paul uses this example of leaven, sort of like yeast, right? The, the, the agent that, that is in dough that makes it so that dough will rise when you bake it into bread or whatever. And uh, you just need a little bit of it. Put it in the whole lump of dough. It permeates the whole thing. And here, leaven is a very negative example. You need to get the the leaven out. It's sort of like, you know, that one leaven, that that sin is going to permeate, it's going to affect the whole congregation. Sort of the um, expression we have, one, you know, apple is going to ruin the whole barrel full of apples, one rotten apple. And so it's reserved for those situations where sin threatens to contaminate the whole church. And here also Paul makes it clear that's reserved for sin that will communicate falsely to the world. Again, Paul said at the beginning, hey, the unbelieving world around you doesn't tolerate this. They're looking. And you're giving them a false picture of the body of Christ by tolerating this issue in your midst and not addressing it. And then finally and perhaps most importantly note that the goal of church discipline the goal is always repentance and restoration of the brother or sister involved it's not punitive uh, the idea is not to make someone pay for his or her sins but for the preservation of their soul look again at what paul says this, he gives the reasoning in verse 5. You're to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of his flesh. You're going you're to send him outside of the protective covering of God's people. And you know what? He's going to go out he's probably going to do more of it. He's going he's to sin all the more. This is a drastic times. Drastic times call for drastic measures. You're sending him out so that like, like the prodigal son in Jesus' parable, he might come to the end of himself and say, what am I thinking? In in my father's house, there is joy. In my father's house, there is the celebration, the fellowship of God's people. What was I thinking? That he might repent, that he might be restored to fellowship. And so it's not actually accurate to say excommunication is the final step of church discipline. Restoration is the final step of church discipline. It's the goal toward which all formal church discipline ought to be pointing. And so here in verses 3 through 5, we observe that Paul authoritatively instructs the church how they should deal with this man in their church who's involved in this especially egregious form of sin. We need to deal with it by exercising church discipline. He needs to be excommunicated from the fellowship. And we learn that the exercise of restorative church discipline is a necessary function within the local church. Christians must be faithful to cultivate an atmosphere of truth and grace among their congregation. Jesus gave us this process in Matthew 18. And I hope you don't ever, when you notice sin and you're concerned about sin in a brother's or sister's life, call them up or get together and say, I'd like to exercise church discipline on you. Let's begin with step number one. Yet, that first step of church discipline, discipline, discipleship, discipling of one another, ought to be happening all the time among God's people, where, where we are transparent with one another, where we can, we can live openly, where we have such an understanding of God's grace that there's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We have such a strong understanding of our identity in Christ as God's people, as his children, that we can live openly before one another and that we can, we can lovingly care and correct one another. And so we, we don't call it church discipline, and we probably shouldn't, but, we, but the, those first steps of lovingly caring for and correcting one another should be happening all the time among God's people, those who have a deep understanding of God's grace. So now having dealt with this specific case of impurity in the local church, Paul turns the corner and he's going to talk about, okay, let's talk about what purity in the church ought to look like. So let's look at that in the second half of the passage. Calling for purity within the church. Paul is very intentional with the illustration that he's used to point out uh, about how allowing a serious sin in one person uh, can, can permeate the entire community. He uses that, this example of leaven, a little, little lump of leaven left over from the latch, last batch of dough worked into a new lump of dough. You're like hearing everything I know about baking bread this morning, by the way. This is it. I got nothing else. So, but you work that in and it permeates the whole batch. You only need one lump to get it all leavened. That's Paul's illustration. But he chooses that illustration, I think, very carefully because he goes from a common illustration of leaven and bread that everyone would have understood, and he points to a very specific understanding of leaven and bread as it's connected to the Passover meal. Remember when the Passover meal was established and what it is The Passover meal was a remembrance of God delivering the nation of Israel, his old covenant people, out of their bondage and slavery in Egypt. They were were slaves in Egypt for hundreds of years, looking for a deliverer. And God sends Moses, and through him, he delivers his people out with a a mighty hand and an outstretched arm. And remember what they had to do on the the day of the Passover. They had had to kill a lamb, perfect one without spot, without blemish. And they had to take the blood and they had to, they had to paint it over their, the door of their house. Because anyone who didn't, their firstborn, would die. And they had to eat. So there was blood that covered them and would save them from destruction. So they participated with that blood. And they ate they ate of the Passover lamb, that they were connected. They, they participated in what the Passover lamb had done. And they ate unleavened bread. Uh, the idea was there didn't, we didn't have time to put leaven in the bread, we had to bake it as we were leaving Egypt. That was a remembrance. Of God's people. And and Paul is calling all of this to to mind. He is reminding them of, of the great story of deliverance in the Old Testament how God delivered his people through the blood of the Passover lamb, and how his people participate by eating the unleavened bread. So now Paul is reminding these Gentiles who have now been enfolded into God's new people. Of how God delivered his Old Testament people. And how that is the picture of the greater deliverance that Jesus brought. That we celebrated by taking, by taking the cup representing his blood. By taking the, the bread representing his broken body. That, that that whole Passover feast was perfectly and gloriously fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. That Jesus was the final Passover lamb. Without spot or blemish, meaning he was without sin. And that when he died on the cross, Revelation says that he was slain and his blood ransomed people from every tribe and every language and every people group around the world. Jesus, the true Passover lamb. And Paul says, here is the basis for your purity. Here is the basis for the holiness of God's people. Why should we pursue purity? Why should we pursue holiness? It's in verse 7. Because that's who we truly are. Paul says, that is who you are. You're not not the old old leaven of sin and rebellion against God. You You are the new lump. How do you like being called lumps? We're the new lump. (laughs) That's who you really are. You you really are the the unleavened bread of righteousness. You see, when we sin as God's people, we're acting against our new identity in Christ. We're acting against our, our true identity as God's people. Remember last week when we talked about the kingdom of God? The, the, the aspect of the kingdom of God that is, that is most characteristic of the kingdom of God? Namely, newness. We've been made new. God is in the process of making everything new. One day there will be a new heaven and a new earth. You see, when we sin, we... we Communicate against our identity, the newness of who we really are, of true, who we truly are in Christ. Remember the title for this entire series. It's Living Out Our Gospel Identity. And who have we learned that we are so far in the book of 1 Corinthians? Let me refresh our memory. We've learned that we are God's church. We belong to him. We've learned that we are those who are sanctified, set apart by Jesus and for him. We've learned that we are saints, that we are holy ones, that that's how God sees us. We've learned that we are those who call upon the name of Jesus, that our identity is as those who are being saved right now in real time. We've learned that we are those who are called by God, That we are brothers and sisters. We are the family of God. Uh, That we are to be the mature, to be those who are truly spiritual. That we're God's field. That we're his building. Specifically the temple where he dwells through his Holy Spirit. We've learned that our identity is in Christ. We, we We are vitally connected to Jesus Messiah we've learned that we are God's kingdom people. We are subjects of our good king, King Jesus. And add to that from today's text, we are God's new people. We are those who have been redeemed out of slavery to sin by the blood of the final Passover lamb, Jesus Christ. Therefore, the apostle says in verse 8, it's time to celebrate. We were actually commanded to celebrate in Scripture Isn't that cool? Feast, Paul says. Celebrate. Throw a party. And he connects it to our purity. We tend to think of purity, living holy lives as, it's an obligation. We're we're good with that, but it's an obligation. It's kind of like rule keeping. There's success and failure. Sometimes I'm doing pretty good. Sometimes I'm not. Sort of keeping score. But God's intent is that holiness be a celebration of our freedom in Christ. We don't just have to obey, we get to obey. See, before Christ, we were were not able not to sin. Sin was just permeated everything. Even when we did good stuff, we had sinful motives. We couldn't, in a sense, couldn't help it. But now through Christ, as he has renewed us, filled us with his Holy Spirit, we are now able not to sin. And one day, we will, not able be, we will not be able to sin. We are perfectly glorified in his presence. But for now, by the Holy Spirit's power, we have the ability not to sin. We are released slaves. And what do released slaves do when they get safely to freedom shore? They dance. They sing. They celebrate. They sing the praises of their delivering king. They gladly devote themselves to obeying their king. Every word from his lips is precious to them. Every instruction he gives is only and always for their good. And so, as Paul writes here, they released slaves. Freed slaves put away the malice and evil, the old leaven of their old lives. And they replace it with sincerity and truth. Paul talks about this here, that we are the, to be the unleavened bread of sincerity, talking about pure motives and truth, pure actions, pure words, pure thoughts that honor God. Paul put it this way, writing to Titus in the second chapter of Titus, verse 11. Same same theme. He says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us, God's grace brings salvation, and it trains us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age, waiting for our blessed hope, The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. We are his people. He has bought us. He has freed us. He is our king. To purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. That's who we should be. As God's redeemed people, we've been been set free from slavery. We've been set free from our bondage to sin and to Satan. And so in joyful celebration, we want to see our lives conform more and more into the image of Jesus Christ. And so here in verses 6 through 8, Paul grounds his critique and command in, in the theological depths of Christ's redeeming work with the image of the Passover lamb fulfilled in him. We have a new name. We have a new identity that's resulted from Jesus' atoning sacrifice for us. So through Jesus' death, he has rescued his, the new people of God who are holy to God. Just as God's Old Testament people were to be holy unto the Lord, we are to be holy unto the Lord. And so pursuing holiness is our joyful privilege and is our new identity in Christ. The basis of Of our purity is our new identity. God also has a purpose for our purity. Purpose for our purity beyond just ourselves. That's our final point this morning from verses 9 through 13. Those who have been ransomed from slavery for the purpose of purity, Paul says, need to be discerning about with whom they associate. However, the Corinthians were confused about which group they were to avoid, and which group they were to associate with. Paul says, I already wrote to you on this topic. And he repeats the principle here in the last few verses. Don't associate with a person who says that they are a Christian, but acts like an unbeliever. I think one translation says a so-called brother. Don't know. They're certainly not acting like a brother. That's the person you're not to associate with. And that's how we should understand the, the list that Paul gives here of, of, of ways that people might live who say they are believers, but the, not, but the entirety of their life says a different message. And that's, again, that's the list here. Someone who is involved in ongoing sexual immorality in practices that are outside of God's purpose for sexuality. People who are greedy, who, who, who covet, who just need more if, if that is Typifying someone's life, it does not communicate that they are a follower of Jesus Christ. If they are an idolater, if they are, have no self-control uh, with alcohol, if they're a drunkard, if they're a reviler, verbally abusive, if they're a swindler, someone who extorts, if that's the pattern of someone's life and they say they're a believer, their life is communicating something very different, and Paul says that's the group not to associate with. He says, but I'm, I'm not saying don't associate with those outside of the body of Christ. Do not separate yourself, he says, from the world. And I think like the Corinthians, most of us probably find it a lot easier to do just the opposite. We find it easier to to separate ourselves and our families and our clean-cut Christian fellowship from from the big bad world out there, while at the same time perhaps tolerating worldly lifestyles within the church. God's word to us today is we need to do the hard work of exercising greater discernment in the church and allowing for God's judgment of those outside the body of Christ. Inside the fellowship of believers, we have God's word. We have the Holy Spirit. And so we're equipped to make judgments and to use discernment. In the next chapter, Paul's going to say, even to the point where uh, you don't need to go to court to have lawsuits among believers. You should be able to do that. You should have the discernment to do that inside the body of Christ. But on the outside, those outside the church, we should bring our expectations into line. How should we expect our unbelieving neighbors to act? When lost people act like lost people, how should we respond? I read an article online uh, this past week regarding a very difficult and um, just a difficult issue in the school system in Elgin where I live. And while I think I agreed with most everything the author said, in terms of understanding what is going on in that situation. The way that this person wrote, I just had to ask the question, what do you expect unbelievers to act like? I mean, when when, when the world acts like the world, should we be surprised? I think if somebody would have read that article, somebody who is not a believer, read that article written by a Christian, their understanding of of Christians would have been that we're really vicious. And that when things don't conform to our standards, we get pretty ticked off and we're going to let people know about it. What should we expect? It doesn't mean we have to lower our standard. It doesn't mean we have to say that, that sin out in the world is okay. That's not the point. I think this text implies that we should respond with great compassion. and we should respond with a sense of mission, that we have a responsibility of the world to display Christ. And Paul finishes this passage where he began in verse one, talking about what is this communicating to the outside world around you, Who is looking? Paul says, listen, you don't don't have to make judgments about the sin of people outside the world. God is going to do that. And I think when we read in the Bible that God will judge, two types of responses ought to go on inside of us. One is, praise God that through Christ, he won't be judging me. That Jesus took my judgment on him. And that my judgment will be righteous in Christ. And I think our other response ought to be great concern for the grave danger that our unbelieving neighbors and friends and family members are in. Because God will judge. God will judge. One day everyone will have to face him. And so we need to understand that our purity has a purpose. Our holiness, God wants to use for his mission. See, the holiness that makes us distinct from the world, even as we're gathered as God's people this morning, the the, the holiness that is to make us distinct from the world is also to serve our mission to the world. See, personal holiness is not just exclusively personal. It's something that we engage in together. It's it's living with hope. It's living as freed slaves. It's purposeful. It's what the world needs. The Apostle Peter put it this way, uh, regarding our identity in Christ and our mission to the world. In 1 Peter chapter 2, he said he identifies who we are. You, we, we're a chosen race. We're a royal priesthood. We're God's holy people, a people for his own possession, so that we might proclaim the excellencies of of him who called us out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once, like our neighbors, we were not a people, but now we are God's people. Once we had not received mercy... But now we have received mercy. And so how should we live, beloved? I urge you, as sojourners and exiles, to abstain from passions of the flesh. Live holy lives. Abstain from passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles, among the unbelieving world, honorable, so that when they speak against you as when they so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Do you see mission in that? Our holiness, which is a result of our identity in Christ, has a missional aspect. It is for the good of all people. That, as Peter writes, they may see that we have hope. We're freed slaves. We're celebrating. We have hope. And they ask, why are you so hopeful? And we have a reason for the hope that is within us. And so, friends, the Christian life ought not to be a drudgery. It ought not to be white-knuckling it through it, through it, just trying to be good enough for God to like me. Rather, it ought to be a, cele- a celebrative engagement with the world. The overflow of our joy in having been redeemed by the blood of the Passover lamb. Our lives ought to be a grateful response of of captives set free. People ought to be able to see the love that we have for our Redeemer. That we want to please Him. We want to live lives of sincerity and truth. We want to live lives that say, "The party has begun." You know what the worst thing about parties is? The celebration ends. If you're little, you have to go to bed. If you're old, you just get tired, fall asleep. But Jesus' death and resurrection, the sacrifice of the true Passover lamb, has inaugurated a celebration, friends, that will never end for all of eternity. We, his people, really are the new unleavened bread. We we have been set free to joyfully pursue lives of sincerity and truth, not just for us, but for our neighbors, that they might see in us together reflections of Jesus' glorious and new kingdom. May God do this work among us for his glory. Let's pray. God, we say when we look at our lives and know that we were once those on the outside. And by your grace, you've brought us in through the blood of the true Passover lamb. We say, God, look what you have done. You've made us your dear children. You've, you've caused us to become your people. And God, you've sent us out with hope. God, would you, would you help us to to embrace the holiness that you're calling us to as a means of displaying your glory to a lost world that needs hope. To those who are still captive to their sin, may may we tell them of of our King who has saved us, who has delivered us, who has released us, whose praises we sing together. We pray this in his name. Amen.